Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com slash Columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events. Now, on to this month's event podcast. Okay, we're going to get started. I'm Ryan Frederick. I uh, run the, the Columbus chapter of Startup Grind. We actually have, where did Dave go? Dave, Dave actually runs the Startup Grind chapter in Princeton, New Jersey for Startup Grind. So he saw the Cover My Meds announcement about them being acquired by McKesson for a billion dollars, and he figured he should come to Columbus and, and see what's going on. No, actually, he's here to hawk his stuff and, and sell his, his startup goods and services to healthcare systems. So if, you know, if anybody knows anybody in a healthcare system, should they, should they come to you and, and hand you business cards by the hundreds? Okay. That, that seemed like a very apathetic position to have around that. So... God, now we're going to be compared to Princeton. Shit, we better do good tonight, Dan. I'll do my best. Okay. I'm a partner at AWH. We build software products for clients of varying shapes and sizes, uh, from startups to enterprises, other sponsors and supporters, Rev1 Ventures, who lets us come and use the space. Mike McCann is still in the back with his Rev1 pullover on. Hi, Mike. Thank you. Dan Bruno is behind, trying to hide behind Mike. Charles is there. Charles looks like he's about to go ask somebody for money because he's wearing a suit and tie. Okay. Um, hopefully that goes well. Do your best. You look your best. Now do your best. Okay. Dickinson Wright. Um, if you need legal advice, um, talk to the folks from Dickinson Wright. GBQ, accounting, audit, fraud, tax. Talk to the folks at GBQ. Heartland Bank. If you need some place to put your money, talk to the, the good people at Heartland Bank. Errol D'Souza from Little Ventures, who's an angel investor, um, sponsor, and longtime supporter. Daryl is here. Where's Daryl? Daryl from King Memory. Daryl, are you still looking for developers and analysts? Okay. Maybe you should start looking in different places. Okay. Looking for an HR manager, too. Okay, so he's broadened his horizons. He's now not just looking for developers. He's looking for apparently people to run every part of the company. So if you do anything at all, if you have any skills whatsoever, talk to Daryl. He's probably going to hire you. I feel like I'm leaving somebody out. I always leave somebody out, uh, but I've got an excuse tonight. I have a cold. I've had a cold for a week. So I, hope, I hope I don't infect anybody. This could be it. I mean, this could be the last hurrah. I may fall out of this chair and it all may end tonight. So if it ends with you, that would at least end on a high note for me. So I appreciate you coming and, and enduring this. This is Dan Mangus. Did I get the last name right? Yep. That okay. Was right. Awesome. Dan Mangus, who's the CTO at Root. Please welcome Dan. So I was joking with Dan earlier. I downloaded the app a couple of weeks ago. And I hope that um, I'm not really looking for a better deal on car insurance. Maybe I am. I don't know because maybe I'm overpaying by a lot. But maybe you probably are. Maybe maybe I should. 
maybe I should be paying what I'm paying based upon my driving habits too. So now I'm afraid that you have some sort of an integration to law enforcement and, I'm, and somebody's going to show up on my porch um, with some sort of arrest warrant because I'm a danger to everyone in this room and in, in, in the Columbus market. Yeah, I promise you're not going to get pulled over on your way home just because you installed the root app. Okay. But you might deserve it. But I might get pulled over. Okay. When Dan and I met a couple of weeks ago, we discovered that um, we had two things in We probably have more than two things in common, but fundamentally two things in common. Both grew up in relatively small, ruralish towns. As I was re reviewing my, my notes on my questions, too, I'm not even sure if ruralish is a word, but I realized that I had sent that to you, so I'm just going to go with it. Small, ruralish towns, and both went to DeVry. So that, that's sort of unique, I think. Yeah, I mean, there might be a lot of people in Ohio that grew up in rural-ish towns. Um, but I grew up uh, near Mansfield, like halfway between here in Cleveland, very specifically in Lexington, which isn't really known for much at all, except the Mid-Ohio <laughs> racetrack is there, and uh, Snow Trails is nearby. And um, I came to Columbus to go to college. I went to DeVry, which is not exactly an Ivy League school, although I had a full tuition. Hey, now. Oh, sorry. You also went there. Right. Um, I did have a full tuition scholarship. Did you have one of those? <coughs> no, keep going. Okay. Um, so it was, it was very hard to beat the price. And uh, another great thing about DeVry was the class scheduling was also very flexible. So uh, a couple years into college, I got an internship with J.P. Morgan Chase here in Columbus, uh, which was great. And then at the end of my internship, I convinced them to let me stay on full time. And I just finished up college on nights, weekends, and a couple online courses. Uh, so I was able to start working full-time just like two years into college, uh, which is pretty great. So then you went to, to Chase, and then you, did, you were a consultant. And, and so talk a little bit about how the Chase experience and the consulting experience ultimately helped sort of frame your view of products and teams and, and building things and sort of defined and helped you know what you wanted to do and what you didn't want to do. Yeah, sure. So when I first got a job with Chase, I thought it was going to be the greatest job ever. And I'm sorry if anybody here currently works at Chase, um, but it was not the greatest job ever. Um, I just thought like this large financial institution, like they clearly know how to run a business, like they clearly know all kinds of things about like finance and like I'm going to learn a lot. There's going to be plenty of opportunities for promotion and doing really big things. And especially as somebody who was like young and eager out of school to like really contribute, it was very difficult to get things done. Um, and I think I was there too, like not too long after the Bank One and Chase merger. So there were constant reorgs. I reported to, I think about five different managers in the two years uh, that I was there. I worked with this product manager. He was actually like a pretty great guy, but he would spend about two hours every morning playing spider solitaire. He was, he was very good at it. And um, <laughs> you'd also like walk down halls, see people working on their resumes. So uh, the experience I did gain at Chase was really invaluable, just learning how to operate in an environment like that and uh, really learning how to work on a team and like how to, uh, how to pitch things, how to advocate for things you want to try to get done. But it was a very diff difficult environment to make contributions in. So uh, after a couple years of that, I, I realized that it wasn't an environment I was going to be happy in long term, and I decided to leave. So then you became a consultant. One, right. of, one of these, you know, people running around and, you know, in really tight suits, you know, and, and to me, you know, backpacks. 
So how was that? Yeah, it was pretty much like that. And you know, of course, after two years of experience working for JP Morgan Chase, you're very qualified to like go into other companies and like tell them how they should be running their businesses, right? Um, but I left Chase uh, after about two years, and I worked for a consulting company called ThoughtWorks. And that was incredible. Um, I learned a tremendous amount there. Uh, I worked on a team of about 20 to 30 software engineers for a very large company in Atlanta. Um, so I was still living in Columbus, but I had to travel for work. I was getting on an airplane every Sunday night, flying down to Atlanta, uh, working four pretty long days, and then flying back every Thursday night, pretty much living out of a Marriott. But again, I just I learned a ton, uh, especially in consulting. Like You get so much exposure to a bunch of different companies, more so than you can really get if you were to change jobs. Uh, because I think after a while, if an employer noticed that you were changing jobs every six months, they'd be pretty reluctant to hire you. But a consulting company can put you on a different project every six months fairly easily. Plus, ThoughtWorks also did a really good job at facilitating collaboration between all of their clients. So I felt like I was learning not only what I was working on on my project and the things that we were doing there, but also what the other teams inside the company were doing with their clients on their projects and the things they were trying that were working well, the things they were trying that weren't working well, and just a really wide exposure to a lot of different technologies and domains. Um, it was great. So you now are a builder of product teams and products and have been for, for a spell. What makes you want to do that? Yeah, so I think the main thing is after spending a couple years at ThoughtWorks, I got a little tired of consulting. Um, and it was great for uh, the amount that I was learned in that time, and I'm really thankful that I spent time doing that. Uh, but eventually I reached a point where I really wanted to work on something for the long run. Um, consulting is good for experience in terms of moving in and out of clients, but oftentimes I'd kind of be unsure or wonder, like, are the decisions we're making the best decisions for this company, but we often wouldn't stick around long enough to find out. Like we would move out and move on to the next client. And I also felt like at a really fundamental level, the most value I could provide to ThoughtWorks was billing more hours for them, which isn't quite true. Of course, like the happier the client was, the more likely they would be to retain us on the project, the more likely they would be to tell other companies about the work we did for them. There's, there's a lot you could do for the company other than just bill hours. But that's kind of like the fundamental business model of consulting is billing hours for your time. Um, so after the experience there, I just reached a point where I really wanted to work on a product that I could pour myself into for the long run and find out like whether the long-term the long-term effects of the decisions we were making. So even in the promotion and marketing of this, even though I beat eight hundred million dollars to death, which was the the number that PayPal um, paid for Braintree, it, the, the reality is we can say by that very fact that you're fairly good at building products. At least the Braintree product, right, was good and was 800 million good enough, right? Why do you think that is? Why do you think that you you have a knack for building good product teams and good building good products? Yeah, that's a really interesting question and I think I've been fortunate to be a part of some teams uh, that are very good at this and a lot of attention always gets put on the person with co-founder in the title or the person with chief in their title. But really, I think even in the cases of companies with a visionary CEO, which um, I would not call myself a visionary co-founder, um, like as good as I may or may not be at what I do and as good as like Alex Tim, Root's CEO is at what he does, uh, we wouldn't be able to execute on this if we didn't have a team capable of building these kinds of products. So, I mean, really most of the credit 
at root, it goes to Lauren Grunenbaum, Bob Carson, Jimmy Devine. Like, they've played the biggest role in building the app so far. They're all sitting there in the back. They can raise their hands. You guys can talk to them afterwards. Raise your hands. So you should definitely talk with them afterwards. And they've played the, the biggest role in building the product that we have right now. But I really think to you know, answer your question about building a good product, a lot of it comes down to just really understanding your customers and having a lot of empathy for the problems that they have and how you can solve those problems and trying to understand that at a very deep level and then actually delivering a service that solves those problems for them. So uh, other than, you know, in this case, we've got a, sort of a valuation to point to around, you know, Braintree. Other than that, how do you define being good at product? Is it what you just said that if indeed, if people are using and continue to use the product, is that the only measure of whether anybody's good at product and whether our product is any good? Yeah, I think there's a few different things that you can look at. And that is a really interesting question um, because I feel like a lot of times with businesses and with startups, like the best product even doesn't always win necessarily. And I guess conversely, the product that wins isn't even necessarily the best product. Like there's a lot that goes into building a successful company other than building a really good product. But I feel like the things that you can look at if you are looking for some metric for what a successful product is, is how many people are using the product, what value are they getting out of it, and how do they feel about using it. And I think you don't necessarily have to excel in all three of those areas to be great at product, but you probably at least need to hit two of the three. And I mean, even just one example, if you take a product like Microsoft Windows, lots of people use it and they do get tremendous value out of it. Like computing power is tremendously powerful. A lot of people hate using it, but I would still call it like a pretty successful product. So based on what I've done at Braintree and based on what I've done at Root, like I think it hits this criteria. I mean, Braintree processes now today over $50 billion in credit card payments for some of the most notable high growth tech companies out there. The marquee client uh, that Braintree has is Uber. So if you've ever taken an Uber, Braintree processed your credit card transaction for Uber. And it used to be like early in Braintree's history, it was fun. I would tell people what I would do and consumers, of course, have never heard of Braintree. They're just like a back-end payments company. But I would try to like go through companies until I could name some company that person has bought something from so that I could say like, oh yeah, we've processed your credit card. And that's gotten a lot easier over time. Uh, so with Uber and with Airbnb and for developers, GitHub, probably I would venture to say almost everybody in this room has had their credit card flow through Braintree systems at this point. And not just the volume of transactions we were able to process, but we often heard from our customers that we were the best vendor they had ever worked with in terms of the service and support that we provided to them. Uh, and that was something that we worked very hard at and was just really meaningful for us to hear. Um, we also focused on building the kind of company that was just the best place people had ever worked. And now at Root, we're taking like a very similar focus on product. Uh, we hear from people all the time. They're just amazed that their car insurance is $40 a month less than what they were paying before, which for a lot of people is a meaningful amount of money. And some people are just email us in disbelief that it was as easy as it was to go through the process. Like we have literally pretty much half seriously joked inside the company, like should we make our app harder to use so that people will think that this is a legitimate way to get insurance? So, you know, based on like that kind of feedback that we've been receiving, I think we're at least on the right path in terms of building great product. So th this might be semantics, but one of the things that you said about the Microsoft Windows example that I wanna ask you about and, and see if you see it the same way, there can be a difference between a successful product 
and a great product, right? A successful product doesn't necessarily mean that it's a great product, right? Might not win awards, right? And those kinds of things. And great products may ultimately may not be as commercially successful, right? Because they didn't have the right product marketing and the other things around them. Is that semantics or do you sort of see it that way? Yeah, I think that's very much the case. Like I think there are, like I said, there's a lot more that goes into building a great product and making it successful. Like those, I think those are like different things. Um, I mean, you could, there's probably numerous examples, especially in the startup community of companies which built an app that people absolutely love using and they just have absolutely no way to make money from it because everybody loves using it for free. And it turns into not being a successful product company even though it was maybe an app that thousands of people just absolutely loved using. We didn't talk about this ahead of time, uh, but I want to get your opinion because you just mentioned you know, building uh, an app and, and people are using it for free and so you don't have to put the business model around it. In your mind, is the freemium business model mostly dead at this point? I think it definitely can work. I think there's a lot of businesses where it works pretty well. I feel like the, the businesses that have the biggest challenge with it are the ones where the path of moving away from freemium is advertising, because I think that's a space where there just ends up being a few very large winners. And two of the winners right now are Google and Facebook, and there's not a lot of room there. I mean, even Twitter is struggling in the public markets right now um, in terms of how they're doing like since their IPO. And Snapchat just filed for an IPO, so maybe there's a little bit of room there, but I think if your goal is to build a product that has a lot of users and then your only plan for making money is to display advertising to those users, it's going to be a really tough road. And I saw something around Evernote's numbers of how many people on Evernote converted from freemium to premium. Not easy to say. It was like less than 2% or something like that, right? And so it's become a much harder path, I think, than people ever gave it credit for of building a freemium product that people like well enough to use, but then not good enough and not valuable enough that people aren't willing to convert to the pay version. Finding that balance has become really difficult, and, and even for companies that appear to be successful, they really haven't struck that balance yet either, by and large. Yeah, I think that can be a very tough thing to handle, especially in the B2C market. Um, so. In my experience, from my perspective, like B2B businesses might have a lot easier time offering like a free tier because then they expect that their customers' needs are going to increase, like possibly higher volumes. And I think it's easier to get businesses to commit to paying money for a service than it is to get consumers to pay money for a service. I think, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of people now just expect really great apps and really great services to be completely free. So converting them into paying customers is a challenge. And I would guess that's why a lot of Evernote's customers, or why Evernote has started focusing on building business products. I think you see a lot of people doing the collaborative editing thing, like trying to get into the space that Google Docs is operating in, because I think they recognize there's a much more significant opportunity in the B2B space than there is in the B2C space. Yeah, so let's talk about um, your experience at Braintree for, for a few minutes, and then, and then we'll dig into what you're doing at Root. Did you know, did the team have a sense that you were building something as impactful and valuable as it turned out to be? We definitely did not. Uh, when I joined Braintree, we certainly had a drive and a passion to build a really great company and really great products, but we didn't anticipate that it would end up as large as what it did. Um, like when I, when I joined, there were seven employees. Um, there was not talk of becoming a unicorn or a billion dollar company. Like our mission was not to grow the company to that size. Our mission was to build a really great product in the payment space. 
Uh, so definitely at a certain point, we realized we were being successful in that path and we were acquiring more and more customers and things were going really well for us as a business. But at the onset, like that, that wasn't what our focus was. What were the biggest missteps that you made? When was it dicey that, oh man, we, we, we almost kicked that out of bounds? Because you know, looking back now, everybody's gonna look at it and say, oh, acquisition by PayPal, $800 million, right? You must have executed overall pretty well. Give us a couple of things that, that, at least from a product perspective, that, that you guys sort of stubbed your toe on. Yeah, definitely. Uh, of course, I mean, there are just numerous things all along the way that we talk about now or that I talk about with uh, my former colleagues. And we say, like, oh, we should have done this differently. We should have done that differently. But usually the optimist in the conversation will, like, remind everybody that, like, hey, this, this thing overall, like, went pretty well, right? We exited for $800 million. So, you know, in that case, like, sometimes I even wonder just in you asking that question, like, what would have it meant to do better? Like, is it just a bigger dollar figure on that exit? Or what would have it meant? Because we built a product that thousands of businesses, like, across the United States and, like, now around the globe, uh, help them, like, run their companies. There's really two types of businesses that every startup needs, especially, I guess, a technology startup. One is which is a hosting provider, and another is a payments provider assuming that they're that kind of startup that wants to make money and not one running the freemium thing. And Braintree was one of those too. So like in doing that, we, we helped a lot of businesses like get their business online, do it with like relatively little effort. Uh, the integration, we worked very hard to make it uh, very easy. And I think a lot of things went really well for us there. But, you know, thinking about missteps and like what could have gone better, uh, one really interesting thing about Braintree is the business was bootstrapped initially. Uh, so when I joined in 2008, Braintree had not taken venture funding. We completely ran the company off of the revenues that we had and the profit that we were making. And the company was profitable from a very early stage, and that allowed us to just grow as we continued to make more profit and acquire more customers. So we did make the transition to being a VC-backed company in 2011. Braintree raised $34 or $35 million from Excel. And I think in terms of missteps, we could have been more aggressive with growth at that point. Um, so being a bootstrap business, we were very conservative. We actually didn't want like a ton of customers because we cared a lot about providing really excellent service and support to our customers. And we felt like we couldn't do that if we had a support team of 10 people and 10,000 clients. So we were very selective in who we worked with, tried to focus on getting the best customers we could. And at the point at which we raised venture capital, I think we, we could have done the freemium thing, and Braintree has now. Like the first $50,000 you process in payments with Braintree are completely free of transaction fees. I mean, Braintree is losing money to process that first $50,000. And we also could have done more to automate underwriting, like accept more types of businesses in, and really push growth that way. But again, I don't really feel like they were too significant of missteps because it's hard to say like how the company would have been affected if we had made those decisions. So what did you guys absolutely, what did you nail and what did you have to nail for it to work? Was it making the integration just as seamless and, and, and grease those wheels for developers on the customer side as possible? That's sort of what I've heard and that's sort of what I've seen, right, is, is that it was we made the integration so easy and we supported them so well that, that people were just blown away about the level of ease and service when they plugged into us. Yeah, that was really our primary focus. Um, so our three goals as a company were to build the best payments platform that developers had ever worked with, to be the best place that people working there had ever worked, and to provide the best service and support that our customers had ever received from any of their vendors. 
And that's what allowed us to uh, achieve the results that we did. Even on the integration piece, it's very interesting to me, and this ties in very well to Root, but when Braintree started, like online commerce was not new. Businesses were accepting credit cards online in 2008 when Braintree got started. And I think a lot of people looked at the space and really felt like there wasn't much of an opportunity there. Uh, they felt like big companies had already settled into the space. They were competing very heavily. Margins were decreasing. There wasn't a lot of room for innovation and payments wasn't an interesting opportunity. But there actually was a really big opportunity there to build better products. One very interesting thing that Braintree did, which I think few people would have probably realized, but when we initially released our API product, and developers who work with APIs will maybe understand some of this, we didn't just ship like a JSON or XML API like most companies do. We actually went through and we built client libraries in every single programming language that we thought one of our customers would want to use to integrate with us. Because we thought if you're a customer building your software in Ruby, and we have a Ruby gem that you can use to integrate with Braintree, it's going to be very easy for you. You'll just need to drop in a couple lines of code. Where even though like a more raw API isn't that hard to integrate with, it's still a lot harder. And we also thought if we didn't go through that effort, there'd probably end up being some community supported package that developers would try to use, but it likely wouldn't be as supported as well as if we did it ourselves. And our team spent a tremendous amount of time and effort trying to save our customers time and effort both in the terms of the work we did building our product, again, like building all these client libraries and every single programming language out there, but also in terms of avoiding downtime. Payments is a business that needs to be online 24 by seven because if Braintree was ever down, none of our customers could accept payments on their website, which of course would be an issue. And there were times at which like our team stayed up all night in the data center trying to move servers from one data center rack to another with absolutely zero downtime so that our customers wouldn't even have a five minute period to where they couldn't complete a transaction on their website. And I think that type of effort has really played a major role in what allowed Braintree to achieve the success that we did there. So let's transition to Root. How did it get started? There's sort of an interesting tale around how it got started. I'm not sure exactly which interesting tale you were looking for, but... Um, the, ju the juiciest one. <laughs> okay, all right. So Root, uh, Root was started around two big ideas. Uh, so I guess first, uh, Root is an auto insurance carrier, just like Geico or Progressive. And it was started around the idea that there was an opportunity for a much better user experience in the insurance space. Insurance companies, no surprise people here, not very well known for having great technology. Uh, it's not what they do at all. And a lot of consumer satisfaction surveys we've seen, insurance ranks worse than even like government services in terms of technology. And we felt like there was a big opportunity there to do better, especially with the shift to mobile. All the insurance companies, all the major carriers do have apps, but you look at their app and it just kind of looks like the app that they built because somebody in the company said, hey, we need to have an app, and not because they recognize that building an app is the best way to allow consumers to do the things that they want to do, to get the information they need on their policy and then get back to whatever they'd rather be doing. Phones are always in your pocket, they're always online. But I, but I can take a picture of damage on my car and attach it to a claim. I mean, this is, this is like some slick shit. Yeah, some, some insurance companies do have that. Um, that's about probably the most exciting thing that happens in insurance. But we did feel like there was a big opportunity there. And we also felt like on the actual insurance product side of things, insurance is this product that everybody who drives is legally required to have, and it's complicated, it's difficult to understand. And in terms of like the technology and the mobile interface and everything, I think just trying to figure out like a better way to present insurance to people and help them understand what they need, why they need it, what they're getting, what their different choices are, is another area where we felt like there was just a really big opportunity. And 
those are the things I think we care most about, but I don't think those alone may have been a big enough opportunity to start a new insurance carrier around and compete in this highly competitive insurance market. The other opportunity that we had was to incorporate a new source of data into insurance pricing. So insurance traditionally is only priced on demographics. Everybody's paying for insurance based on their age, their gender, their credit score. But as you can probably imagine, two people of the same age, gender, and credit score could drive very differently from each other. One person might be very safe, be very responsible, and not even drive all that often. And another person, we know that's not you. You download the app. Um, and another person might be very aggressive, very reckless. Wait a second. How do you know it's not me? Oh, I told you. It's not like you've been, you haven't been looking at data, have you? Yeah, it was, it was self-admitted before we started this. Okay. I haven't um, come up on, a, an, on an internal dashboard or anything, have I? No. I really okay. promise we're not going to call the police on you. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, so two people the same age, gender, and credit score could drive very differently from each other. And those two people should not be paying the same price for their car insurance. But right now they are because their insurance company is only looking at their demographics. So insurance companies have known this for a while, that how people drive is much more predictive of how likely they are to cause an accident than their demographics. Uh, but they've really struggled to execute on it. And the shift that happened that really allowed Root to get started is that phones have gotten to the point where they can capture this data well enough for us to incorporate it into insurance. So we can use an app on the phone to gauge how people drive and then set their insurance price based on that. And that's what we're doing at Root. So how did you get there? What's your journey to get to be on the Root team? Yeah, so as uh, the company was forming, uh, somebody introduced me to uh, the group of people getting started with it. Uh, somebody, uh, Ken Barker, that I knew from my time in Columbus before I went to Chicago uh, with part of Braintree. So I actually haven't caught up with Ken, but I probably owe him a beer or uh, maybe a lifetime of beers for uh, connecting me with this group. But um, that's how I got in touch with the company as it was getting started. And I just got increasingly excited about the opportunity and decided this is what I wanted to work on. So it, it, when we got together a couple weeks ago, we talked about sort of the evolution of the insurance space and how it's sort of gone from an independent, mostly independent agent model to then sort of a slapstick marketing model, right, of flow and, and you know, cavemen, right, because the, the product is so boring and nobody wants to think about insurance and nobody really wants to buy insurance that they've had to put this sort of veneer on top of it, right, to make us laugh about it, to make it more painless, I guess, in, in buying it and engaging with the companies. And you had some reservations or maybe concerns about, right, does the fact that this is an industry that, that is sort of low touch, right, and people sort of don't want to engage with, what does that mean for Root moving forward? Are you any more comfortable now than you were a couple of weeks ago around that? Or, or how do you think that you, or do you think just the pure model of your leveraging data to drive pricing, is that enough of a differentiation that ultimately people are going to be like, yeah, Root's my car insurance company because the model is just fundamentally better? Yeah, I think the model is better enough that uh, we can win based on that. But it is definitely a challenge. And when you look at the space overall, like I think you gave a great overview of it. Like the large insurance companies have largely stopped innovating. And they're now competing with each other on marketing spend. Geico alone spends a billion dollars a year on marketing, which is more than the Red Cross receives in donations every single year. I did the math at one point thinking about this, and if you divide their marketing spend by their policyholders, like each policyholder is spending $70 a year to see that gecko on TV. 
which is a lot of money to pay for Geico to put a gecko on TV. And I think we feel like that would all much be better focused at, in building a better insurance experience and building better products for insurance. So, of course, what we would really love to do at Root, and I think as you identified, one of our biggest challenges is on customer acquisition and getting the word out there about what we're doing without spending a billion dollars a year. And of course, I think the dream of every product is just to spread via word of mouth, right? Make an insurance experience so good that everybody will tell their friends all about it. And to some extent, like we've started to do that a little bit. Like we've even seen people on Progressive's Facebook page start leaving comments about Root. I think it, I don't know if it was more because of how much they hated Progressive or more of how much they loved us, but I'd like to think most of it was the latter. And that's, we've started to get a little bit of traction there, but I think we still have a really long way to go. And what we'd really love to do is figure out a way that we can execute on this so we don't spend a billion dollars a year on marketing and so that we can take that $70 a year Geico policyholders are paying to see that Geico on the TV and just reduce our insurance premiums by that amount. It's basically how insurance works. Included in every premium is an expense ratio. And that expense ratio at traditional carriers is really high. So you take this fundamental concept of pooling together money so that if one person maybe is unlucky and the rest are lucky, you know, the pool of money goes to paying for that person that actually wasn't an accident and needs to get their car fixed and get back on the road. But there's this really high expense ratio over top of that. So at most traditional auto insurance carriers, of the 100% of premium they collect, only actually 60% is going back out to policyholders to repair their vehicle or pay their claims. And then there's maybe another 10% that is like this loss adjustment expense that you could argue is part of that process. And then there's this other 30% overhead that is funding the operations of the insurance company and their marketing and all of their expense loads that consumers are paying for as well with their auto insurance. And I think Root has a tremendous opportunity on both sides of this, both to build a more efficient insurance company that can really reduce that expense ratio and then, again, put that money back in consumers' pockets as a result. And I think we'll have a chance to do that just by building Root on top of a modern technology stack. Most of these insurance carriers are still running on top of a lot of legacy systems, on top of a lot of mainframes. They've grown via acquisitions, so there's 20 different systems that people have to use to like facilitate the insurance process. I'm pretty sure it's still true today that if you have a policy with Nationwide and you have like homeowners and auto, you have separate logins in their website for these two systems. And insurance companies have really struggled with executing on technology. And then you incorporate this highly inefficient industry with the opportunity to start from scratch and build a new insurance carrier on type of a modern technology platform. And you also combine that with incorporating new sources of data in pricing insurance so that people aren't only paying for insurance based on their demographics. They're now paying for insurance based on how they drive. And I think we're going to have a very, I know, we're having a very serious opportunity here to reduce insurance premiums for a lot of people as a result. I mean, we can collectively save people billions of dollars a year. Damn, dude, you've gotten passionate about insurance. So, sometimes I get a little excited about it. Is Root a software company that also provides insurance, or is it an insurance company that manifests via software? Yeah, well, for, or do you care? Really what we care about is building the best insurance experience possible, building the best product for consumers. And I think both sides of that equally come into play, which is maybe a bit of a cop-out on your question. But I think building the best product for consumers involves providing very good technology. It involves utilizing the latest capabilities to get people the best price possible, but also provide the easiest way for them to do the things they want to do. Like people, 
don't want to spend time on car insurance, right? Like it's not what people think about like, oh, I'm going to go home tonight and like read my policy document documents or something like that, right? Like it's, it's not what people want to be focused on. And at Root, we've worked very hard to make the, pro the process as easy as possible. You can actually, I'd, I'd love for people in the room to do this, you can actually get a quote from Root without using the keyboard on the phone at all. So when you download the app, we have people sign up. We have Facebook login, so you can just tap on that. And if you're already logged into Facebook, you're now logged into Root. We ask for your personal information, and we utilize the camera on the phone to scan the barcode on the back of a driver's license. So rather than typing in your name, address, driver's license number and everything, you just point your phone at the barcode on the back of the license. It's just like scanning a QR code. It takes a couple seconds. It usually annoys me because it'll read the barcode like so fast that I didn't have it lined up perfectly in the box like before it snaps it. It surprised me how fast it read the barcode. I was astonished. The scanning technology that you guys have built into the app, superb. We have a very good engineering team. But we, we read in the license that way, and then we use that to figure out the other drivers and vehicles that people are going to want to have on their insurance policy. So there are various like reports we can run, motor vehicle reports, vehicle registration reports. So we figure out the drivers and vehicles that you're likely going to want to cover, and that saves people from needing to type in all of that information uh, themselves. So if you're still following along on this no keyboard thing, Facebook sign-in, barcode scanner on the back of the license, then we require people to drive for about two to three weeks, which is how long we need to get like a clear understanding of how people drive. After that period, you get your quote. It's right there in the app. We send you a push notification, letting you know it's ready to go. Uh, we provide like a few simple options. You can choose when you want your policy to start. We provide some different options for limits and deductibles. But then if the policy looks good, you buy the policy right there from the phone, and we use Apple Pay or it's an option. So if you have your credit card saved on your phone, you just put your thumb on the Touch ID thing and boom, you have insurance. And you compare that to getting a policy from any other carrier where you go to progressive.com and they ask you 50 questions about your life history, like where you've lived, where you've worked, how many accidents you've been in, uh, your dog's name. I don't know why they ask you that. But like, there's just so many questions that you have to go through to get an insurance policy and we've just eliminated all of that at root. Are you happy with where the product is right now and the progress th that the team has made? Yeah, we are, we're unbelievably happy with where we're at right now. We've been working on this for a long time. The company was started almost two years ago, but we just publicly launched late last year. So I think a lot of people are just hearing about Root for the first time. But it's been like a long, arduous process to get to this point. Oh, I think the interesting thing was talking about um, that we weren't going to be a carrier as soon as we did. I can tell that story. But anyway... Becoming an insurance carrier is really hard. So it's a fairly long, arduous process with the Department of Insurance to become licensed to be a carrier, and we had to spend a lot of time doing that. And building the entire infrastructure to run an insurance company is also not an easy task. In a lot of ways, what we launched could be considered a minimum viable product, but like we need to be able to price insurance accurately. We need to be able to handle claims. We need to have our rating engine working, our policy management system, like the app. There's a lot of things that needed to go into that, and it took us a while to get to this point. But we worked very hard at getting through that process. We were able to launch late last year, and to be honest, like February is a record month for us, and we're only 13 days into it. Uh, so it's been really exciting to see. We, um, we, ring it, we have this little gong that we ring in the office every time we sell a policy, and it's starting to get a little annoying. So where are you headed? Is it go to other states? Is it come out with more products? Because the base product is, it's simplistic, yet it solves a big problem and addresses something that's otherwise complicated, right? 
and you don't want to add complication for the sake of complication. So is it just geographic expansion fundamentally is the fundamental growth plan? Yeah, there's a lot of things like that that we're working on. And even though we feel like the product is working amazingly well right now, we're still working very hard at it. Like we do very deep. Uh, Lauren Grunenbaum, who runs product at Root, has, just does an amazing job. You should see the analysis she produces on our product each and every week about getting feedback directly from customers and hearing from them through our support system and taking a really hard look at the metrics that we collect in the app. We collect a, just a tremendous number of metrics as people are going through the app with how they're using it, how long they're spending on each screen, like what they're tapping on, how they're using the app. And uh, we're still using that to aggressively make the product better because even though we feel like it's the best insurance experience in the market right now, we feel like we can still keep pushing it forward. So we are working on expanding to other states. For the most part, our focus is on product and I think we'll get what we need just being in Ohio, uh, Root's only available in Ohio right now. Insurance is licensed at a state level, so we have to go state by state. And I feel like we'll get the feedback we need just in Ohio to continue to push the product forward, which is our focus. But this regulatory environment is uh, so long and so cumbersome that we really want to get some momentum on expanding to other states uh, so that once we are ready to push this out further, we've taken care of that regulatory piece and we're ready to go. So I've got get your questions ready because I've got one more question for, for Dan. So what's the team look like today? Where do you sort of think the team is going to go over the next year or so? When I was at the office a couple of weeks ago, you guys are you know, busting out walls and, you know, and, and expanding your space. What do you think your, your footprint, and I'm going to piggyback a second question of this too, culture. What kind of a culture are you curating and, and what kind of a place do you want Root to be to work at? Yeah, definitely. Um, so in terms of the team right now, we have about 20 people, which is kind of amazing because Nationwide, Geico, Progressive all have 30,000 and we sell car insurance just like they do. Of course not just like they do, they, they probably have like tons of other options or whatever and, um, and they make it very difficult. But you know what I mean. We're 20 pe people competing in this market and this space where our competitors have 30,000 people and billions of dollars in capital. But right now our team is about 20, it's about half engineering and then uh, we have a lot of departments of one right now, like one marketing person, one actuary, one data scientist, smartest guy I've ever worked with, PhD in applied mathematics, he's amazing. <laughs> Who else do we have? Uh, we brought in somebody uh, to focus on recruiting and growing the team. I'm forgetting a couple roles, product, Lauren, of course, I mentioned her a couple times. So that's where we're at right now, and I, we're definitely working on growing. Um, we're looking for bringing on just the very best people that we can find in Columbus, and specifically I'm trying to get the very best engineers all together in one place to <coughs> really make an impact in a very big market. I think one thing that startups can do as they grow is like early on you're really forced into hiring generalists because you have so few people that you need people who are capable of doing a lot of different things. So our engineering team right now, they're capable of working in various parts of the stack like infrastructure, DevOps, backend, frontend, everywhere. And you look across the company and people like are very multifaceted in the types of roles that they're handling. But as we grow, we'll be able to bring on people that have a a little bit more of a narrow focus. We were just talking today about bringing on maybe like a marketing focused designer versus like a product focused designer and some of that. But I think team growth is something you have to be really thoughtful about because if you try to grow too quickly, I think in a lot of companies it just ends up leading to too much chaos and you really want to pace that really well and have a steady stream of growth in the company so that you're bringing in each person, they have uh, ample opportunity to get ramped up, get acclimated to the company and the culture and how things work. and get them settled in, get the team to adjust to like new contributions and like a new way of working with a slightly larger group before you're continuously bringing on more people. So it's hard to say like exactly how many people we have at the end of the year. I wouldn't be surprised if we double, but our growth isn't 
headcount. Like we don't measure the success of what we're doing by the number of people working for our company, which sometimes I wonder if some founders do. We're really more looking for like, you know, where do we have gaps? Like what's the bottleneck for the company right now? Oftentimes it's engineering, uh, which is hard for me. People, people have a lot of ideas for things they want built and we only have so much capacity to build them. But we're really trying to be thoughtful about how we approach that and you know, bring on people to fill the biggest needs for the company and just iteratively and continuously do that. That was pretty long. Do you still mean to answer the culture part of the question? Yeah, quickly, because I think it's important. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, what yeah. kind of a culture are you trying to create? Yeah, it is definitely important. And uh, we work very hard to make Root like the best place to work in Columbus. And I think a few things go into culture. A lot of people start talking about their company culture, and I feel like they just focus on what makes your company good, where usually the interesting parts of company culture are what makes your company different. Uh, so Root is hands down like the group, the smartest group of people I've ever worked with. And I think it's really because to run an insurance company, you have a bunch of software engineers, data scientists, actuaries. Uh, I'm pretty sure I know the least about math in the company. And while I don't know that much, I don't think I've ever just flat out been last before. Like a lot of lunchtime arguments end with like a proof, like a mathematical proof on a whiteboard uh, with somebody just trying to make their point. Like it is absolutely incredible. And we actually apply that to a lot of parts of our business. Um, so, you know, I mentioned the product analysis that we do every week, like the projections that we have for like how we're working as a company, all of that we approach very analytically. And the thing I love the most is that we balance that out with a lot of direct contact with our customers and a lot of not just looking at the numbers, but talking to people about what they want, what their experience was, how we could have done better. And uh, that's something that we've done a very good job of so far at Root. I think a couple other things that come to mind is really just being focused on delivering product. Like it's amazing how many companies, I know I told my stories about working at JP Morgan Chase, but I feel like even in the startup world, a lot of companies struggle to get things done. And I feel like Root is a place where people are coming in every day and we are getting stuff done. We're making stuff happen and we're doing that very collaboratively as well. You see a lot of companies where there's a lot of tension between, you know, the person responsible for marketing really wants you to build like the share links into the app and the person uh, responsible for like product really wants some bug to be fixed and the person responsible for growth really wants like this new feature in there but I feel like at root like we don't have that we don't have those tensions we have a group of people that have figured out how to work together like very effectively all around a common goal of really trying to change the insurance space awesome so before before I choke and die we'll throw it out for questions and that way if I do it won't matter because people can just ask questions and you can answer them. Yeah, we, we don't need you from here on out. Right, exactly. Thank right. you. I can just keel over and we're, and, and we're good. Right, exactly. So Darren's got a mic, so if you have a question, raise your hand. Darren will get you the mic. Go ahead. With Ford coming out with the, they want to have a self-driving car by 2020, what are your thoughts on where all of car insurance is going to go with that, not necessarily just root? Yeah, we talk about this all the time. So usually when people ask us what we're going to do with self-driving cars, we say we're going to insure them, which is really our plan. So Root is better positioned than any other company to take into consideration new sources of data and figure out and respond to change in the insurance landscape based on that. So I think there's still a lot of questions with autonomous driving, whether it's people individually owning cars that can drive autonomously and or whether it's more of like the sharing economy, where just like now you order an Uber, like you're gonna do that from your phone, but a car's gonna drive up and there's not gonna be anybody in it and you're just gonna get in all by yourself. So we spend a lot of time focused on it and uh, may or may not be working on some things in this area that uh, you'll see some announcements about. But uh, like I said, I think once 
there is autonomous driving, like cars are still going to be, need to be insured, it probably becomes the most significant change if fleets are owned and maintained by auto manufacturers and people don't individually own cars anymore. But in terms of understanding the risk, like responding to the data, gathering data as cars are driving and figuring out how insurance needs to change, I think Root is better positioned than any other auto insurance carrier to respond to that trend. Um, I have two questions. Uh, first question is, how come you do not accept PayPal? Is this funny? Because I used to work on a payments company that got acquired by PayPal, and we don't accept PayPal now. Um, so Root, Root does process credit card transactions through Braintree, and we just haven't added it yet. So there's thousands of things that we could add in the app to make it better. We've tried to focus on what provides the biggest impact for most of our customers, and most of them are serviced pretty well by credit cards and Apple Pay. So I'm sure at one point we will do a product deep dive into like the transaction piece and we'll wonder if other types of payment methods could actually help more consumers. If, if our customers have a preference to pay another way and we feel like that is one of the biggest opportunities we have for making our product better, then we'll add PayPal. That's fair. Um, my second question is, what's your biggest piece of advice of scaling a um, IT department uh, team of software developers from, say, 5 to 25? Yeah, 5 to 25 is definitely a tough transition. I mean, you're starting to go from the point where everybody knows and is involved with everything that is going on to a point with 25 where that's a lot harder and you're probably breaking out into multiple teams. I feel like at 25, you're still small enough that most people can stay pretty closely involved and you could still even run like an engineering-wide meeting with 25 engineers and operate pretty effectively there. Um, but one thing I try to focus on a lot is like our early engineering team at Root, we're building with really pretty senior, really experienced people that uh, will easily be able to lead smaller teams of engineers as the company continues to grow, which in my experience is the best way to really set yourself up to make that move from 5 to 25 and do it well. Hey, so uh, my question for you would be uh, for the next two years, like I've seen uh, some of the big insurance companies do actually doing the whole uh, tracking your driving uh, style. Uh, and I'm just not sure, uh, are you trying to compete further on with these big companies? Are you trying to license your, your product for, for them to use? Yeah, so uh, we're not going to license our product for them to use. Uh, interestingly, I think this is one of the stories uh, we talked about before, but when we initially started the company, we thought we might. We thought, like, well, we could build a bunch of technology in this space and find some insurance carrier to partner with, and that'll be, like, a good way to get the company off the ground. Like, we didn't think, hey, you know what? Like, day one, let's try to become an insurance carrier. Uh, but we talked to these insurance companies, and, you know, we'd say, like, well, hey, maybe we could partner with you. You could do the underwriting for the insurance and everything, and we'll provide some technology. And we'd tell them, we're going to want to display quotes in the app, so can you give us an API to do that? And they'd say, like, oh, well, maybe we can get something to you in, like, Q3 of next year. And we'd be like, well, all right. And then if somebody wants to buy a policy, we just want to do that right there in the app. And they'd say, well, we can't do credit cards over an API, so why don't you just call this 800 number? Um, so eventually we realized that to build the product we want to build, we are going to have to become an insurance carrier ourselves so that we could just own the process end to end. Uh, so that's the path we ended up going down, that now Root is an insurance carrier. We underwrite policies and we take on that risk, uh, just like major auto insurance carriers that you can think of. And a lot of them, I think as you identified, like are working on pricing insurance based on how well people drive, but they've largely been ineffective at doing that. Um, a lot of the companies, in fact almost all of them I think, are doing it via devices that need to be plugged into the car. 
Uh, casually, they're usually referred to as dongles. Specifically, they're OBD devices on board diagnostics. And those really just have a lot of friction. Like those devices have to be shipped to people. People have to plug them in their cars. Some people are going to be comfortable with that. Other people aren't. And compared to the experience of just installing your app, an app on your phone, which is something people do on a daily basis, it's a complicated process. But the bigger issue has been that all these insurance companies are focused on growth. They're focused on their quarterly earnings and you know, having good results for Wall Street the next quarter. And as part of that, they've been very reluctant for people trying these programs to raise rates on the bad drivers. But, I mean, insurance works by pooling risk. And if you're not willing to raise rates on bad drivers, you can't give good drivers nearly as big of a discount as they deserve. So I think you'll see like a lot of these programs where you try this out and maybe you get a 5%, 10%, maybe even a, a crazy 15% discount on your auto insurance. But the issue is these people should really be getting 40% discounts or even bigger. And they do with Root right now. We routinely save people $40 a month on their car insurance, uh, sometimes even more, uh, because that's how much they're being overcharged by traditional demographic-based pricing. But to do that, at Root, we tell bad drivers that we can't give them a quote right now because the only way to make this possible is by not for Root is not insuring bad drivers because otherwise you're just using the good drivers to subsidize the cost of the bad drivers and that's what has largely made these other insurance carriers ineffective at running these programs. Oh, one of the things I forgot, uh, one of the ironies of all this is Dan's wife actually was an actuary bigwig at Allstate. And so now he's trying to just, you know, completely disrupt Allstate and put Allstate out of business. So, you know, there's also that. So you guys can, you guys can go, go home and have, you know, insurance actuary dinner conversation. Yeah, yeah, it is funny. So my wife went to Ohio State, um, majored in math. And the reason we first moved to Chicago, um, I was still working for the consulting company and traveling was because she got a job as an actuary at Allstate. So she spent five years there, uh, passed eight of the nine actuarial exams. So she's an associate of the Actuarial Casualty Society, uh, which is... A, took a lot of hard work and is a pretty high distinction and it's just a complete coincidence now that I started an insurance company. And um, I have another like funny coincidence related to that. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so uh, Braintree, the payments company that I work for. So my wife's father is Bob Cohen. He's here who runs the Braintree Business Incubator in Mansfield, Ohio, where I grew up. So there's a business incubator in Mansfield, Ohio called Braintree and I just coincidentally worked for a payments company in Chicago called Braintree. And my father-in-law runs that business incubator. He's been like very helpful to me throughout my career. That's wild. I know. I know. Bob, where's Bob? Bob's come to some startup grind before. Yeah. Hey, Bob. Yeah, that's cool. That's your father-in-law. That's my father-in-law. That's Gee. my wife, the actuary. That's her father. I, I would have. I would have been nicer to Bob if I'd have known that before. Dave, go ahead. So I have a question. As a CTO, that's been part of the founding team twice, with clearly pretty positive experiences. Can you just share lessons learned about how you find the rest of the founding team and what advice you have to CTOs looking to do that or to executives looking for a CTO? Because that's a common challenge. Yeah, I'd love to have a really great answer to your question, but I feel like I just got lucky twice. So Brian Johnson, Braintree's founder and CEO, uh, was absolutely incredible to work with, and I loved my time and experience there working with him. Um, I just learned a ton, and very similarly, Alex Tim, Roots uh, CEO and my co-founder there, has just been absolutely incredible to work with, and I just consider myself uh, very fortunate to have gotten connected with him in starting the company. I think the main thing that really comes to mind when I think about this is it's it's really hard to get to know somebody, I think, until you actually spend a while working with them. And you know, I mentioned these two CEOs that I've had a great experience with, but I've had other people like closely involved in founding teams that 
I didn't have as great of an experience with. And I feel like you really need to be in situations with people to understand how things are going to go. Um, so people make analogies all the time, like co-founders and getting married after the first date and things like that. And I, as cheesy as it may be, like I think it's actually fairly apt that the thing I would probably try to advise the most is try to figure out how to really connect with somebody and build up a relationship, which isn't going to help you if you need a co-founder like yesterday. But if it is something that you can do, uh, I think that's really the only way to do it. We'll make this the last question. Um, I had a question in regards to Braintree. Um, you guys operated in a business that was like very mature. There's a lot of competition. It's hard to stand out even if you have a unique value proposition, especially working in a B2B type of business. If you can walk us through your strategy in, in terms of business development, how do you guys reach those large consumers as a startup and let them use your service over others? Yeah, that's a really good question. And actually, like Braintree and Root for me are, feel very similar in many ways. And so the issue we had at Braintree was always that a lot of companies would look at us and they would say, if we were choosing a payments provider today, we would hands down choose you. But we already have a payments provider and we really don't want to switch. And there, what we needed to focus on was just identifying people at the right point in time when they were feeling the, some sort of pain that we could solve for them. For a lot of businesses, it ended up being mobile. Um, they had payments on their website, but they needed payments in their mobile app, and they needed solutions there. Uh, also, globalization and international expansion. As companies went to expand outside of the United States, they needed international payments capabilities. And another big one was PCI compliance. Uh, so PCI compliance, uh, we, ha we had regular regulatory changes in our favor at Braintree where PCI compliance became an increasingly important thing and a lot of high growth tech companies didn't want to be spending their engineers time dealing with PCI compliance if they could just work with a payments company that could handle that for them. Uh, so we ended up like gaining a large number of customers when these companies would grow to the size where their revenue and their payments volume meant that like they were under scrutiny for becoming compliant and Braintree was just hands down the easiest way to become compliant. So I think really a big part of it is trying to identify those pain points which your customers can have and figure out if you can solve those pain points for them. Root is very similar in that the fantastic thing about Root and I think the one reason that Root will be largely successful is because of the number of people that are affected by the product, right? Like every single person in this room, unless you're driving illegally or you don't drive, like has car insurance. And that's great for us uh, because it's not hard for us to find a potential customer. Like literally every single person is a potential customer. The challenge we have is everybody also has insurance. And even though Root is the easiest way, hands down, to get insurance, it's not easier than just doing nothing and keeping the insurance you currently have. But the market is large enough that I think there will be people who realize that they're overpaying for insurance, realize that they're paying for insurance just based on their age and based on other people their age and not based on like their own actions that are going to be looking for like a different experience there. And we're doing our best right now to reach those people. So hopefully I'll have more uh, success stories to share down the road about how we solve this problem at Root. Do, a, uh, do Dan a solid, download the app, let him track your driving. He said it'll be okay, no matter, no matter what happens. So download the app, see if Root makes sense for you for car insurance. They're building a really kick-ass company in Columbus. They're going to build a really big company, I have no doubt. Please help me thank Dan for coming and joining us tonight. Thanks for listening to this Startup Brand Columbus event podcast. 
We will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com forward slash Columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones. Until next time, keep grinding. Keep grinding.